Hey everyone, before we get to today's episode, I wanted to share what I think is a pretty exciting announcement. We are opening up our rival AMP community. So some of you listening have been part of AMP from the beginning of the company. It has been our small, very small friends and family community around Rival where we post updates, ask for feedback, kind of share what's going on in the business. But actually we think there's a lot more potential as we've grown, as our community has grown, as we've met more of you to actually build and scale a proper community within Rival Amp. So what Rival Amp is going to be is it's going to be a community for challenger marketers on WhatsApp. We're going to share ideas and observations from the challenger marketing world that we see and ask everyone to contribute to that. Share about challenger brands, marketing news, industry events, job opportunities, ask for feedback and input, use each other as a sounding board. We think it's going to be really great. So if you are interested in joining and are not already a member, please either reach out to me if you know me or go on over to our website, wearerival.com, and you can apply from there. This is free but we do want to make sure that we're adding people that are really interested and can really add value. That's it. On to the episode. It's unfortunate that the earned media landscape, we still haven't figured out the perfect way to dimensionalize impressions because there's still the, we got 10 million impressions, you know, out Laura, and that feels good. And it's a good big number, but what did those actually do? And I think there's still a struggle in the industry to define that. Um, so, so maybe one day we got to peel off and figure that out, Eric. I'm Eric Fulweiler, and this is Scratch, bringing you marketing lessons from the leading brands and brains, rewriting the rulebook from scratch for the world of today. Hey everyone, a very special episode of Scratch. We have Jacqueline Ruel, the VP and head of brand for Papa John's Pizza um, based out of the US. Jacqueline and I go way back to the time that we spent together working at Mullen up in Boston. And uh, she's awesome, as you will hear, and super smart. I love the topic of this conversation. And the other thing I really like is how tactical she gets and how specific she gets with here's what to think about, here's what to do. Let me give you a couple examples of how we've done this. It's very hands-on and practical. So I think you're really going to enjoy this. Uh, Jacqueline talking about how to build buzz and talkability around a brand and the journey that she's on to reignite Papa John's business, elevate their spot as one of America's most loved takeaway pizza chains. I will say, fair warning, do not listen to this episode hungry because we do talk a lot about pizza and pizza topics and I'm very hungry right now. So that's my only concern is make sure you get a snack ready. Other than that, Please enjoy my conversation with Jacqueline Ruel. All right, a very special episode of Scratch today with Jacqueline Ruel. It's so good to see you again. Thank you so much for making the time to do this. It's so good to see you as well. Thank you for having me. This is going to be fun. So obviously we go way back. We won't get into how many years we've known each other, but I always enjoyed working with you when we were at Mullen. We spent a lot of time together. I've loved watching what you've done since then at the Martin Agency and now venturing over to the brand side and your role at Papa John. So I love the topic. As soon as you said it on our prep call, I was like, yes, we need to dig into this and you're the perfect person to do it. So I'm really excited to uh, to hear your perspective on this topic. Awesome. Yeah, it's it's a it's a passion point for me, you know, like how how do we build up these brands and get people talking in the right way? Amazing. All right. Well, we're going to get into it, but 
Before we do the icebreaker question that we ask every guest, can you tell us about a challenger brand that you're passionate about right now and why? Yeah. So, you know, I've really been paying a lot of attention to the beer category. Um, maybe that's because beer and pizza, you know, name a, name a more iconic duo. But I think what I've seen as a marketer, but even as a consumer, is they're actually speaking to women in a different way than than what I've seen previously. And I think I can almost tell the journey that they're going on to be able to kind of wrangle that female customer. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm I'm really paying a lot of attention. There's Coors Light back in the fall was doing a whole spot about like a woman that comes home from work and she like unhooks her bra and throws it on the couch. And then right now, you know, there's a Bud Light spot out there in the world and like the woman is literally like carrying five beers in her hands and kind of bobbing and weaving through a, a crowded a crowded bar or a crowded pub wherever she is and i think they're doing a really amazing job at not making it like the guys guys um kind of beer drinking spots that we know of the past and so keeping a really watchful eye on what's going on in that category are there any because obviously you know um when I was on the agency side, I did a lot of work with Anheuser-Busch and on the big brands that you would think about. But of course, that's a category that is being very disrupted by challenger brands and also challenger uh, categories or challenger products in terms of hard seltzer and, and, and all those other options. Is there Are there any kind of like challengers that you're seeing in that space or that you personally are kind of um, gravitating towards that's really speaking to you? Yeah, you know, you know what I would say who I think is acting like a challenger in that space, you know, you've got all the seltzers competing and I think there's a little bit of like blurred lines cuz it's they're all kind of doing the same thing. I actually think even though it feels, you know, like it's a bigger brand, I think what Modelo is doing because it came in in such a kind of cornered pocket of the beer business, I think they're competing for those mainstream slots. Whereas like they could have been kind of the beer of summer and just taking a small corner of it, I think they're coming in strong and actually playing within, you know, the Budweiser, Bud Light, Miller Light, Coors Light category. So I think sometimes when I think about a challenger brand, it's like who could be mainstream, but they're kind of punching above their weight and acting like that, that number two, number three, that's kind of trying to claw its way to the top. Yeah. Well, it's what we used to say at Mullen, right? Even if you're a number two, you need to think and act like a number one. Or sorry, the other way around. Even if you're a number one, you need to think and act like a number two. Isn't that like an old Phil Knight quote or something? It is. Yeah. From Nike. That's right. Cool. So let's get into the topic. So we are going to talk about buzz. And this started and you threw out a couple great stats about how brands that are talked about, brands that are able to build more buzz, are able to drive more growth within their category. And we'll share some of the links to the research in the show notes for folks. But why don't we start with the definition? I think it's one of those terms that gets thrown around so much. Everybody talks about building brand buzz. How would you actually define the term brand buzz? Yeah, it's um, this was a great question. When I saw it come over, I'm like, you know what? We debated this for a long time when I was at the Martin Agency because we wanted to talk about it in the right way for the brands that we were working on. The way that I always like to think about it is buzz is about driving talkability. And now I've just thrown another buzzword in, into the mix. But I think it's 
How do you get your customers talking and sharing about your brand, but also like consistently? I think the consistency angle of it, if you really want to be buzzing all the time, I think you've got to have that hum um, that doesn't just come and go, right? You've got to have a rhetoric that transcends even when you have something big coming, but even when you're maybe between two different conversations. So I think that's an, you know, it's a consistent talk value that a brand earns from their customers, just being out in the world, feeling compelled to talk about that brand, whether it's to their friends, their families, their networks. It's interesting because I, I totally agree. And the other perspective and data point that I'd throw out there is that with Curo, this category intelligence tool that we built that looks at search data within a category to understand how it's changing, which brands are winning and losing and why, that's one of the big takeaways for us with most brands and most categories is when you see a spike in search activity, so people searching for a brand, either positive or negative, oftentimes, because you can look at it over time, the ultimate share of search for that brand within the category does not really change. But the ones that do, the ones that are able to actually consistently gain share of search, which then, of course, correlates to market share gains, are the ones that are consistently driving more talkability. So we haven't distilled that down into a brands that drive X percentage share of search gain Y percentage over a consistent, over a Z timeline. But I think that could be an interesting angle. But anecdotally, that's a lot of what we're seeing within the category is actually those spikes, which, of course, we get so excited about in the marketing world, on the PR world, the question is always, is that actually driving growth of the business and driving gains in market share within the category? But of course, like you, you know, where we started this conversation and some of the research that's out there, it really does. It's not just a PR thing. It really does. Focusing on talkability really does drive business growth in the long term if you can do it consistently. That's right. And you know what I like about what you were just saying? I mean, I think sometimes, you know, in marketing, we talk about being provocative, provoking the conversation. It's like you don't obviously want to tip the scale into negative buzz. Nobody ever wants to earn that part. But sometimes you have to do something in a provocative enough way where people are going to take an opinion that might not be exactly what you want them to hold about your brand, but you need to provoke that conversation between two customers. And I think sometimes, like you're trying to go for like all positive all the time, which Granted, like you want that to be the end result, but I think you have to put things out in the world that don't just always get the heads nodding in agreement with you, but actually inspire people to talk about things. Yeah, because, um, you know, actually it's like that expression of if the biggest risk with modern marketing isn't saying the wrong thing, it's actually saying something that nobody cares about, right? Like the biggest risk is actually taking no risks because especially, you know, name the category, all of them, the noise is so great. The competition for attention and headlines and media is so great that if you play it too safe, you're not going to stand out at all. And people aren't going to talk about you. They're not even going to know that you're there. Um, but I think that's all, you know, the reality of it. And, you know, you now being in-house, love your perspective, but also on the agency side, you know, we've all been there. The reality of actually getting a brand, especially a big established brand that has a lot to lose. And this is why challengers are often able to do this well, because they don't have as much to lose. They're more comfortable and it's more natural for them to take risk. But actually getting a business to 
say something that might be a little bit provocative, say something that might not be exactly, you know, you're not exactly sure how it's going to go over. That can be a real challenge. Is that something, um, you know, we got a ton of stories that we could swap back and forth from the agency world, but is that, is that something that you've kind of taken to your role at Papa John's is, and obviously that brand having gone through a lot over the last couple of years, focusing specifically on the comfort level and the culture, and then also the process of how do we actually take risks to get talked about? Is that something specifically that you're trying to do? Yeah. I mean, listen, that's ultimately the goal. I think we have to be super intentional about how we get there. And so I think a lot of what my time has been to date is all about laying the framework to be able to kind of embrace that bravery and be able to go out in the world um, and have those types of conversations. I think what's what's really important about what we've been doing is making sure that we know who our customer is. Because I think a lot of times when you go out in the world and you have these conversations, the the places where brands misstep is they think that their customer is is going to be a, a well-received recipient of a particular topic, and it just kind of ends up being a swing and a miss. And so a lot of what we're doing is overindulging in research right now to kind of redefine our customer. So when we go take these swings at the right types of cultural topics, we're going to at least know enough to know that it's a topic that our customers care about. Because the, the one thing is, is you could totally upset a group of customers, right? And like, you always have to peek around every corner and think about who, who has the potential to kind of bring that backlash. The other thing that you mentioned earlier is you just might enter a topic that they don't care about. And then so it becomes white noise again. And so I think part of our science behind the scenes right now is studying and watching and seeing and understanding what are those cultural topics that our customers are going to want to celebrate with us or want to take a stand against or for with us and just understand um, where we're going to kind of strike that sweet spot and go from there. And how do you like tactically, either in general or specifically what you did when you came to Papa John's and kind of, you know, sorted, I know you've been there seven months and then sorted, sorted out what you want to do. And we're like, right, we need a better understanding or deeper understanding of our audience. Where did you actually start? Like, did you go find an agency? Is there kind of a tool that you used? How do you actually start that process? Because I think that, and again, having done a lot of these and also my last company, as you know, actually building product, it really does start and end with an understanding of the customer, whether it's a product or a great brand. It is about customer centricity and ideally a customer centricity that's differentiated from your competition, an understanding of or insight in your audience that other people don't have and then that you're then able to kind of activate creatively or through comms. Um, But I'd just be curious, you know, because it's still relatively fresh, that process, when you decided you wanted to do that, where did you start? Yeah, it's a great question. So we started with a curiosity about the customer, right? Because in the in the math pizza category, there it is very easy to just market to everybody with a mouse that loves pizza, which, by the way, is um, you know a lot of people in the whole entire world, right? And so the difficult part is actually get attacking that segment and trying to find the white space that our our customers aren't dominating in right now, right? So we can try to find that unique angle. So 
We've been doing a number of things because it's not like a one pure silver bullet, I would say. So we've been digging deep with a partner on customer segmentation. We're also overlaying that with first-party data of our current customer base. And then we're trying to find where are things matching up, where are their potential gaps, right? And so that's kind of been running. Um, We have great agency partners that we're working with. And so they're trying to put kind of third-party research, a strategic layer on top of the research that's been done, looking at doing, you know, focus groups, going out into the market, like tried and true, um, kind of like feet on the street of talking to customers, talking to our team members in the stores, really trying to wrap our arms around um, the need states. I would say that's another important thing about this is there can be a lot of demographic, psychographic information that starts to come through, but synthesizing it all into figuring out what is the true need state that we're trying to attack? Because then that's when we can really turn on the creativity. What's the type of content? What are the different types of channels? And so we've probably got three or four different paths going from proprietary research to first-party data overlay to agency partners coming in with a little bit of that outsider perspective to make sure we're synthesizing it in a way that gets us into those actionable insights. Because I I think sometimes you can be like paralyzed by data. And especially if there's a wealth of data, it starts pouring in and then it's, okay, well, what do we do with this? How do we action this? And so um, I think it's, like I said, it's not just a one size fits all. We're coming at it from a lot of different angles. You talked about tools um, as well. I think there's a ton of, we, we have like a an overflowing MarTech stack um, in, inside the company. But what I'd also say is I like to look at tools and I use this a lot at Martin Agency, which sounds somewhat similar to what, what you're doing with your tool in search. So um, I use NewsWhip a lot that looked at velocity of storytelling. And what that helped us do is understand in the marketplace, when a brand starts being talked about a particular story, what is kind of the the relevance and prevalence of how how quickly or you know what's the long tail on that conversation breaking through? And I thought that was interesting to overlay um, digital outlets, journal you know journalistic publications with social media platforms to understand if you've got the right piece of content in the conversation, you can put it out in the world. Who do you put it with that helps it to scale and break through? So then I think as you start to piece all of these things together, you almost create that engine of hitting the customer, nailing a topic with a piece of content that makes sense. But then how do you seed it in the right way? Because if it, that's like the missing piece sometimes. You can have a really amazing piece of content that your fans are going to go wild about. And like if you just don't reach them, at the right time and, and through the right channels, it might not be as big of a bang as you thought it would be. So I I think piecing all of that together has been what we've been trying to do and take some smart swings inside Papa John's for how we're going to start coming to market more regularly. So I'd be curious to dig a little bit deeper because um, I'm kind of thinking about and I want to ask you like other principles and processes that you have in mind and apply to this ultimate angle of how do you build a brand that gets talked about that has buzz. So there's certainly one that's, you know, the deep and differentiated understanding of the customer, and that needs to be kind of at the foundation. 
And I think from what you're saying, a big part of that is it's not just a one-off exercise. You kind of need to build the partner and the systems and also the mindset for that to be an ongoing thing. And then there's the, okay, if that's our customer, then there's the culture around the customer because it's the intersection between those two where there's an opportunity for the brand to kind of insert itself in a meaningful way. And so you need to build that out. When it comes to the execution, so you've got the insight, you've got the cultural layer that you want to you know, stand in or stand on. When it comes to the execution of actually deciding what to say, where to say it, when to say it, what does that look like in what you're building right now? Yeah, <clears throat> that's like the, the matrix, right? <laughs> it's the chessboard. Um, here's what I would say. It is not the same playbook every time. And I think it it depends on what it what is the news and the noise you're you're going to look look to make, and who do you want to talk about it first? So I'll tell a little a little backstory. Um, when I was at Mullen, we were working on American Greetings, and we did this phenomenal piece of content for Mother's Day. This was back in like 2014, and we decided to identify. We called we called them our carrier pigeons. We were like who are going to be the core carrier pigeons of this story that we think will allow it to take off because they're going to share and kind of create that sustaining power with their network. And, you know, it was moms. And that seems obvious when you're talking about Mother's Day, but a lot of Mother's Day content and advertising often speaks to the people that are going to celebrate moms. So it's the spouses, it's the kids, it's the family members and you don't always see someone going, well, I'm going to talk to moms about, about their day and talk about moms. And so we armed the moms to be the carrier of the story to go out and support and lift up other moms. So I think, again, it's, you know, I'm going to go and repeat. It goes back to, to the customer. Like gone are the days where you just try to go land everything on a morning show. You know, I remember back in the day, it was like, let's get it on the Today Show. Let's get it on Good Morning America. And then it was like, that was your goal, golden moment, right? I think now it is so more, much more surgical about who to place it with because you might actually need to go put it in, in TikTok and let it take off there first. And then maybe it grows a little bit more mainstream or honestly, maybe it lives in TikTok the whole time. And because of that, you know, e-commerce engine that has prevailed, like maybe that that's where you win. And I think what you have to understand is where is the customer that you need to reach first that's going to have the most amount of impact on the on the story that you're going to tell. So I can I can tell you currently we we just launched we're kind of 2 weeks into this awesome collaboration that we did with Doritos Cool Ranch at Papa John's and we launched a Doritos Cool Ranch Papadilla. Now we knew that the Doritos audience is hardcore Gen Z. That is not necessarily an audience. We have our arms fully wrapped around at Papa John's, but we know that the Doritos team does. So we came out of the gate swinging with a very targeted Gen Z approach. And so we start with Gen Z and then we scale it back out to some of more, more of our kind of millennial parent customers that we're talking to right now. And so I think it's a little bit of understanding if the product is going to reach a certain audience, don't try to go to the, the masses from the jump. Maybe you eventually scale up to them, but go find your carrier pigeons. That's what I would use as my little soundbite from this. 
who's going to, who's going to carry the content first? I love that as a soundbite. And I love that as a metaphor, because one of the ways that I've talked about it or thought about it in the past is you need to understand where the pools of attention are for the audience that you're trying to reach and who owns and controls those pools. Cause it used to be that there was one big ocean and it was the mainstream TV driven media outlets, but now it's so much more fragmented. And I think thinking about it that way of like, there's a pocket here, there's a pocket there, there's a pocket over there is really, is really part of it. But also your point of who are the people that are going to carry the message into that pool and get that pool talking about it because, you know, buzz, viral, talkability, all of that, if you do it right, it is a chain reaction that ultimately starts somewhere. And so actually putting the time and focus on understanding not just where are people spending their time, but who is influencing that time and can you get them involved in telling the story? I really like that. Yeah, that's right. You know what? I always look for, especially with these so social platforms. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, you know, and there's probably not the most perfect, like it's an engagement metric, right? But I always look for the at tags. I'm like these people that tag their friends in into the posts. Like you can't tag someone into a TV spot these days, right? And so the powerful nature, you know, it's the share factor. It's it's like the Ford feature, right? But I I look a lot when I look at brands that are doing well or even on our own. I'm like, how many people are tagging their friends into this post? That to me is one of those kind of pinnacle engagement metrics that I like to look for because that's when you know you've found some of the right carrier pigeons because they're, you know, to your point, like they're all flocking to the content. So I did want to ask you about how you measure success when it comes to talkability. So I really like that. And I don't, I don't think I've heard that before, like specifically looking at the number of at tags that you're generating in these campaigns. What are the other metrics that you look at or that you think are important to understand whether or not you're driving talkability around the brand? Yeah. So I've, you know, I've sliced and diced this a number of different ways throughout my career. I think it, it's unfortunate that the earned media landscape, we still haven't figured out the perfect way to dimensionalize impressions because there's still the we got 10 million impressions, you know, out Laura, and that feels good. And it's a good big number, but what did those actually do? And I think there's still a struggle in the industry to define that. Um, so, so maybe one day we got to peel off and figure that out, Eric. Um, so here, I like to look, I like to look at a lot of different numbers. I mean, we, for a while, when I was at the Martin agency, we looked at what we called an impact ratio and it was something that we built internally because ultimately when I was there, I had started the Cultural Impacts Lab and we were like, if we're going to encourage these brands to impact culture, we need a way, even if it's a directionally, to say what they're doing. And so ultimately what we tried to do is show for every dollar spent to buy an impression on their paid media line, we wanted to try and get at least two, threefold over that. So whatever we went out into the marketplace with, you can't, you know, you got to have some of that paid gas pedal that you push down. But the goal was is that we have unlocked a cultural insight. We're going to tap into a community that's going to share this. And ultimately, we look to get at least double the amount against what we were spending to buy those eyeballs, right? And so we talked about that as impact ratio. I think in 
in some other brands that I worked on throughout the years in in um, agency world, a number of people, some people have an attention score, you know, which is an amalgamation of engagement over media spin with impression, like they kind of fold everything in together and then they benchmark against themselves. I'm also seeing, you know, an interesting way to do it where it goes into more, it's like less quiet and more qual and it, and you know, you're coding stories and conversations around the, the mission of the brand and the pillars of the narrative. So maybe there's three things that you want people to take away from your brand and you're kind of coding each time you go out into the world, whether it's a buzz activation, a storytelling moment, you're coding those against those pillars of the narrative. Because if that's what you want the customer to take away about your brand, that's what you want them to know about you. That's what you want them to, to say about you when they're talking to friends and family. Are those pillars of the conversation, the narrative bleeding through in, into the coverage, right? And that's hard sometimes, especially when you're looking at it through an earned lens, because you can't always control what the headline's going to convey and things like that. But I think I wish there was, you know, a one metric that the whole industry was following, but there's not. Everybody does it a little bit different. I, I feel a bit partial to the impact ratio that we were using at at the Martin Agency because I I feel like it was actually a really true testament of did you crack the code of culture? Did you seed it to the right community? And every time we did, we would exceed the amount of money we were paying to buy the impressions in the paid media side. And ultimately, that's the counterbalance that you want, right? Because otherwise, you're just a behemoth brand that can outspend everybody. And especially when you think about challenger brands, that's often not the case. They often have the smallest budgets in the category and they need the buzz and the stunts and the activations to to carry them through when they're defending against big media buys. But also it's that constraint that drives the creativity that often leads to these campaigns and executions that get talked about more. And so actually, as you were talking, one of the questions that was kind of framing up in my mind is obviously Papa John's big business, massive scale has been Super Bowl advertiser, I'm sure does a lot of above the line. How do you think about how this fits into that? Because obviously they complement each other and it's nice to have the, you know, the awareness um, and probably recall that a Papa John's have, has. But a lot of what you're talking about, I would assume, is kind of investing in, you know, earned media channels, new media channels. We've talked about Instagram. We've talked about TikTok. Are you, I don't know if you can share, you can just talk in general. Is this something where you're shifting budgets away from kind of traditional above the line to do more of this? Is that required as part of this strategy? How does the media and the budget for your distribution plan and your comms plan, how does that factor into all of this? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a big debate every single time. I would say, you know, massive shift, no, but it's about balancing it through the cadence of a campaign, right? So, you know, we could be anywhere from like four to 12 weeks, depending upon the campaign and the duration that we're going to run. So a lot of times it's like, what do you come out swinging big in TV and then carry it through sustaining power in social? Do you start in social and then kind of ratchet it up into um, the TV. So there's balance, right? I think when you're in QSR, 
um, you can't like we can't walk away from TV. <laughs> Obviously, like we gotta we gotta play there. But I think the other thing that we're trying to do is create a cultural cadence of not just making it about like all food all the time, which is certainly the cornerstone of QSR. Like you have to create that like mouthwatering craveability. Um, a lot of what I've been talking about since I've come is this idea of food where food meets fandom. And I think a lot about our category and then, you know, other, I, we look a lot outside of our category, you know, like what is Chipotle doing? What is Burger King doing? What is, you know, we're looking at everybody. And so what I like to think about is how do we talk about the food itself that gets people salivating, but also we have a category that is so universally beloved. Like, I don't know anyone in my own circle that doesn't like pizza. And so I think we have such a ripe opportunity. We just have to bring those fans tighter. I'm always like, wrap our arms around the, these fans and bring them into our family. And so we have to make sure that anytime we're, we're coming to market, we're finding ways to spark the fandom while delivering on 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 the food and the craveability piece of it. And so I think a lot of what we've been trying to do since I joined is figure out where are those moments of fandom, you know, and how do we interject them into, we might need to launch a, a big LTO and put a big product out there that we need to go gangbusters, but how do we just not make it a product play? And how do we find these moments where we can interject the fandom into the the master part of the campaign and it's not just bolted on at the end it's ingrained in the concept that we come up with so you've talked a lot about how you're approaching this objective in your still relatively new role and you've actually given some examples of kind of campaigns that you've done even in that short period of time i'd be curious is there a case study that you can point to where you can kind of talk us through, great, here's how it started, here's what we did here. I don't know if you can share the results, but here's the out outcome of it within this. We wanted to drive buzz. Here's how we did it. Yeah. Yeah, this is, this is one of my favorite ones because it went really fast. Um, so in the lead up to, to Super Bowl, this past Super Bowl, um, we are not, we did not have a TV spot in the, in the game. Um, we have a, competitor you know little caesars actually owns owns the game they're the nfl partner pizza partner so we were kind of keeping an eye on just the rhetoric that was surrounding the game um what i always like to say is it's it's so nice when all all of my network and my friends you know very thoughtfully drop into my dms quite often I'm like when you work in pizza all of a sudden i find like friends are like did you see this did you see that so um a friend of mine sent me the uh, Kelsey Brothers podcast, which admittedly, I, I didn't even know the brothers had a podcast, right? So he was a fan. He was listening. And midway through the podcast, they start randomly talking about Papa John's. And it was pretty, it, it was, it was pretty benign. Like I like to say, they were talking about whether or not Papa John's was a pizzeria or not. Like they were having this whole debate. Well, do you call it a pizzeria? Do you not call it a pizzeria? And it was just this like great brotherly banter and debate. And I don't even know, they didn't really say like if they liked our brand or not, but I'm like, you know what? We were like in their mouths and they were talking about us. 
So we started floating it around with our agency partners and we were like, there's something here that we could play with. Like, do we go get the brothers to do something? Like, how do we attack this? So the reality was it was literally two weeks before the game when they did this. And it's like, okay, these guys are focused on the game. You know, they're playing against each other. But as we took a step back and looked at the narrative that was surrounding, everything was about the mom, Mama Kelsey. And everybody was talking about the mom because she literally was like head to toe, like a dividing line of the Kansas City Chiefs and the Philadelphia Eagles gear. Like her shirts were split in half. She was wearing two different shoes. Like everything she did just had this like line drawn down the middle. Now, serendipitously, we serve two specialty pizzas that speak to both of those markets. So we've got a Philly cheesesteak pizza and we have um, a barbecue chicken pizza for um, Kansas City. So in like a, literally in a matter of six days, I think it took, we ran around. We have a test kitchen on site at our headquarters in Atlanta. We went back with the culinary team and we were like, can you make a pizza and split it down the middle? Which seems easy when you say it out loud. It's like, yeah, we can make a pizza. But, you know, there's two different sauces you have to play with. Like the ingredients start bleeding together. We want to make sure it actually tastes good. So we got back there and started playing in the kitchen, which is like a dream. You can just like bring everybody together in a kitchen and like try to figure this out. So ultimately what happened is we went to market with Mama Kelsey with a pizza that we split down the middle for her. And um, we connected with her team. She was staying in Phoenix where the Super Bowl was. We delivered pizzas to her hotel room where she, she then did a bunch of social content for us. And she was on a media tour herself because all the news was interviewing the mom, you know, just talking to her about like the divided house during the game. So every place she went to go to an interview with local news, we sent them a pizza as well that was split down the middle. Now, ultimately, we would have liked to sell that pizza to, to customers. But from an operational standpoint, knowing that Super Bowl is such a big like night for us, we couldn't hinder the operation. So what we did is... We were like, okay, if you're rooting for Philly, you can get X amount of a discount off of the Philly cheesesteak pizza and for Kansas City, um, the barbecue chicken. But that project alone took us about six days to turn around. And that's all the time we had, right? Because the Super Bowl is the Super Bowl. It wasn't moving for us. We had to run at that deadline. And so we turned it around in about six days. And I think it it had, you know a few billion um, impressions between PR headlines and social media conversations. And it wasn't planned. So I think when you can find those opportunities where you can move like very fast and very, and very nimble. And by the way, I'll recommend that everyone has their legal team on speed dial. I literally text with our lawyer all the time. She was one of the first friends I made when I started this role, to be able to have that swift, nimble team to pull together with the support of our agency partners to be able to turn that around, that's a lot of the secret of the science, right? Because there's a lot of things that could get in your way, but you got to keep the team tight and it's got to be the right people that can make quick decisions when you're running at a, at a cultural moment like that. But I think that was a that was a huge, huge one for us. Um, and, you know, we had one of the the highest performing Super Bowl weekends to date in the history of the company, which 
there were a lot of things happening at that time that contributed to it. But I, I feel like this was a little bit of the cherry on top that helped us really move the needle during that time, especially like when you don't have a sponsorship of anything. We truly were able to hijack culture. It is interesting because it brings me back to the newsroom days, you know, uh, what was it, 2011, the Oreo dunk in the dark Super Bowl tweet. And then it was like four or five years of every brand being like, we need a newsroom. We need to do real-time marketing, that whole conversation. And the example you just gave is that. But I think what I was thinking about as you were saying that is I always go back to people don't like advertising. They like good content. And that sometimes comes from brands, rarely, because I think marketers tend to ruin a lot of good content. Um, but actually, if you have, if you're doing it for the right reasons, and if you're focused on the customer and the culture around the customer and actually putting something out there that's going to add value, could be informational, could be entertaining, could be like whatever it actually is. If you're focused on adding value to the conversation, I think that's still relevant. But I think the difference is, of course, you see those like tweets and, you know, organic TikToks and things like that that do go viral from brands. But I think it's just noisier out there. It's a lot more competitive to put out content that people are going to care about. And so I think the bar is raised. And what you talk like, that is not, if this was 10 years ago, you would have just put out a tweet that said, I heard Mama Kelly, you, you know, you would have like mocked it up as an asset, but you actually did the pizza. And so that's kind of where my head was going. And I love that example and, and, and how specific, like you just talked everybody through exactly how it happened, which is really helpful and interesting. But I think that's one of the big takeaways for me. Serendipity prevailed in that moment as well. Because give me two other teams in the Super Bowl and it might, like the fact that we had pizza, specialty pizza that spoke to those communities, like put two other teams in there. We might not have a pizza that speaks to those those fandoms, right? Like it just, that also just worked in our favor. <laughs> but but also you, you know, you create your own serendipity. And one of the quotes I always think about is how can you expand the surface area on which luck will stick to? Meaning you set yourself up with, you know, like your, your carrier pigeons coming to you about pizza news. I'll have to, I'll have to join that flock actually. Um, I'll start texting you all the pizza related <laughs> content and conversations that I have. But, but then also you had the, the, the culture with the team that you're building and the communication and the systems set up to be able to actually go do it. And also knowing you, I know a big part of it was like, you were just going to go get that done. And I'm sure there was an element that was like, you just had to drag it over the line, but sometimes, sometimes that's what it takes. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a little bit of that final grit and grind. Totally. I know we're up on time. Let's do a super quick lightning round um, before we let you go. What is one of the biggest wins? I mean, you've talked about a bunch of them, but what's one of the biggest wins you've had recently? Yeah, I'd say launching um, this culinary collaboration, the Doritos Cool Ranch Papadilla. I saw on your Instagram, I saw some of the NBA uh, players wearing the shirt. So the tunnel, the tunnel drip, the tunnel drip was real. What is one of the biggest struggles you're dealing with right now? I think it's just conjuring up everybody to be brave and to kind of push on what it means to be a breakthrough marketer. Love that. Best marketing resource you found recently? I am currently a huge fan of all things brand innovators. 
So they are reimagining getting people back together on the ground and these physical pop-ups all over the country. And I think they are nailing it. The biggest lesson you've learned in your career. Listen, period. (laughs) What's one thing people should do differently after listening to this episode? Um, I think go back, go back to your teams and kind of embolden the bravery and go find your carrier pigeon. And lastly, what's your favorite Papa John's pizza? Oh, all right. Um, Epic stuffed crust pepperoni. Uh, I'm really hungry right now. Of course, with the garlic before this conversation. All right, Jacqueline, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much. As always, it's a pleasure talking to you. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think our audience is going to get a lot out of it. Thank you so much and go Celtics. Awesome. Let's do it again soon. Scratch is a production of Rival. We are a marketing innovation consultancy that helps businesses develop strategies and capabilities to grow faster. If you want to learn more about us, check out wearerival.com. If you want to connect with me, email me at eric at wearerival.com or find me on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, share with anyone you think might enjoy it, and please do leave us a review. Thanks for listening and see you next week.